who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Let's hang out. Let's hang out. And let's talk about what lessons have found. Let's hang out. And let's listen to two lesbians shout. Let's hang out. Let's hang out. Hey everyone, Lee here. It's our last week of our summer hiatus. That's right. Season seven is just around the corner. And to introduce our last summer spotlight, I get to tell one of my favorite stories about the time that I went to a Winona Earp watch party at a bar in San Francisco. I walk in. I knew no one there. Then one of the first people that I met was another pretty small gay who was also named Lee. And over the course of the night, we learned that we were both about to launch queer podcasts. We were born in the same year. We lived within about two miles of each other. um, And we drove nearly identical cars. And that doppelganger that I met that night is Lee, who is the host of History is Gay. So enjoy this episode where they are taking us way back to the OG lesbian Sappho herself. That's right. Enjoy this episode. We'll see you for our season seven launch next week. Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle NBs that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. My name is Gretchen. And I'm Lee. And in this episode, we are going, we are taking it way back and talking about the OG, OG lesbian. lesbian. <laughs> I love Sappho that meme. herself. I know. It's great. <laughs> yes. 
We're finally talking about Sappho. How many years did it take? Like three years into this podcast and we're finally talking about Sappho. <laughs> it's a good way to start 2020, right? New year. Yeah. Beginning beginning of things. Beginning of gay. Not New really decade. beginning of gay, but the OG, yeah. the OG lesbian with a capital L. From Lesbos. From Lesbos. Which is a real place. Yes. Hence the hence the name of our episode, because we couldn't pass up using the meme for something like this. Fucking superb, you funky little lesbian. Yes. Because she's a lesbian from Lesbos. <laughs> it makes me happy. <laughs> so I guess this is spoilers for how gay was she. Pretty gay. Wow. Sappho, pretty gay. I mean, regardless regardless of how gay she was, she was still a lesbian, so. Right, she was, yeah. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Does this have to be one of those, like, thinking of, like, French wine memes, where it's like, you're not actually a lesbian unless you're from Lesbos. <laughs> Otherwise, mean, you're just a, I don't know. A homosexual. Some, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you say that facetiously, but there was actually legitimately a court case about that. <laughs> There was there was legitimately a court case like back in I think it was late 90s something like that where a bunch of lesbians were like saying hey people should not use the ter- like people cannot use the term lesbian for anything other than being from Lesbos. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. It's like literally a court case and the judge oh was like gosh. nah. Nah, no. it's it's uh it's widespread enough it's okay. It's Most people probably don't even know that Lesbos was an actual, like, island that actually existed and not, like, some fantasy island. It's not like Themyscira, folks. Lesbos was real. Excuse was real me. Island. Themyscira was absolutely real. I mean, yeah, here yes. we go. <laughs> There's, here's a quote from uh, the intro for Sapphistries by Layla J. Rupp. How impossible it is to dissociate Sappho from her legacy is suggested by the fact that, oh, it was in 2008. In 2008, a Greek court dismissed the request of three residents of Lesbos for a ban on the use of the word lesbian for anyone other than inhabitants of the Aegean Isle. Wow. 2008, folks. That's like 12 years ago. That feels, that's very recent. I also really like that it's just three dudes being like, no. But I want to be a lesbian. (laughs) I'm a lesbian in a man's body. Sure. Sure. Anyway, should we get into this some stuff? Right. Um, uh, do we have any content warnings? I really don't think so for this episode. This is a pretty tame mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. Uh, not very sexual either. So, you know, if you're feeling squicky about sexy stuff, not a huge amount. It's mostly about longing and relatable gay feelings. In terms of announcements, uh, we will be... Uh, showing up at TGI Fem Slash next month. Mm-hmm. Yay. 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 So check us out there. We're excited to see people. As always, we have merch and various things. Um, yeah. So this is a people-focused episode. So we're going to go into a biography because Sappho was a poet. We're going to have a lot of her poetry in our discussion. And we'll talk about historical context, and then we're going to end the episode with How Gay Were They, which is our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight, 
uh, given that two of the words that we use or, you know, that queer women use to self-describe come from Sappho. I think I think you can kind of tell where this is going to go. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, totally sapphic and lesbian come from Sappho. Yeah. So let's kick off this episode. Fucking superb, you funky little lesbian Sappho. <laughs> uh, Lee, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Greek time periods? Yeah, sure. We'll uh, we'll start off here a little bit with some social and historical context so that, you know, generally when we're speaking, and also a lot of Sappho's reputation comes in later Greek periods, so we wanted to give a kind of timeline for what we're talking about. So the Greek periods that we're dealing with start with the Archaic period, which is from 750 to 500 BCE, and this is the age that Sappho is from. It is most noted for the continued proliferation of the arts that had emerged in the age before, which is the Mycenaean age, or Mycenaean age, which lasted from 1100 to 600 BCE, where ancient Greek culture really started to develop and solidify in this age. Pottery and sculpture took root in this period, and political theory and democracy started in the Archaic period. From then on, we move into the Classical period, which started in 500 and moved until 336 BCE. And this is, when you when you think about the golden age of, of ancient Greece, you're thinking about the classical era. The democratic system was fully created and implemented, and this period saw the building of all of the big ruins that you see from ancient Greece, like the Parthenon, and there were major conflicts with neighboring empires, especially the Persian Empire. So when you're thinking about classic Greek, you're thinking about the classical period, most the time. Unless you are thinking about the Hellenistic period, which is 336 to 146 BCE. It begins with the death of Alexander the Great and ends with the emergence of the Roman Empire. So this is kind of the the death throes of the Greek empire, ancient Greek Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of division, and the cultural capitals of Hellenistic Greece weren't even like Greece proper. They were mainly in Alexandria and Antioch, which were the capitals of the Ptolemaic Kingdom and the Seleucid Empire, respectively. That's kind of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So uh, where do we get our information about Sappho? We're going to talk a little bit about our sources because you kind of have to understand the sources to understand why we read some of these sources the way that we do. You kind of have to know what they are and where they come from. So we do have fragments of Sappho's poetry, and we're going to dig deeper into that a little bit later on. But teensy little bits of biographical material we can glean from Sappho's poetry, though historians typically are wary about using poetry for biographical material, as you can well understand. When you're dealing with poetry, it may not always be historically accurate. Mm -hmm. But she mentions her own name in at least three of the fragments that we have and discusses some family members. Actually, there was new fragmentary compositions of Sappho that were preserved on papyrus that were discovered and published in 2004 and 2014 that revealed information about her having three brothers. And one of the fragments that they found is probably the most autobiographical poem that we have. So some of the information we have about our life is only recent. Yay! Or only recently stuff. discovered. Yeah. I know. Cool. Everybody's just like like hovering over these tiny papyrological fragments being like, oh, ah, yes! <laughs> like that's, that's the life of a classicist, folks. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Uh, I studied Dead Sea Scrolls stuff. So I, yeah, do you get tiny little fragments? 
And my favorite are the photos from like 1920 when they're first discovering some of these papyri, especially in the the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they're just people standing there like smoking cigarettes, like room (laughs) with all these tiny little fragments of paper and just people smoking cigarettes. And it makes me want to like tear my hair out. Yeah. Horrifying. Like, no, horrifying stop, like those stop. are just there's flames no no <laughs> they're already bug eaten we don't want fire holes <laughs> you're gonna burn the fragments <laughs> so uh moving on from fragments we have some vase paintings <laughs> so we actually have sappho showing up on a number of vases from the archaic and classical periods which is I think pretty cool that she got to be the subject of a vase. Yeah. One of the earliest surviving images comes from a vase dated to 470 BCE, which shows her holding a lyre and a plectrum. And a plectrum was another instrument, which was, or it's the instrument that was used to pluck the strings of the lyre. So, and she's sitting there holding her lyre and plectrum and listening to Alcaeus doing her thing. <laughs> doing her thing. Uh, the other main source, one of the other main sources that we have is something called the Suda, which will come up many, many times in this episode. It is a different sources said 10th century, different sources said 11th century. We're going to frame it around there, but it's a Byzantine encyclopedia of ancient culture or testimonia. And it's the basis from which much of the biographical tradition of Sappho comes, but it's very mixed up with some other sources, like Athenian comedies. So mm. there were plays written in the classical era, divided into three periods. You have old comedy, middle comedy, and new comedy. And during this time, there were several plays throughout all these periods that featured Sappho, and there were even two titled after Sappho, and we get this comic stage figure version of Sappho that ends up getting woven into the biographical tradition. Right. And it's a, like it's important to know that when you're dealing with Athenian comedies, like these are meant to be exaggerations or maybe even purposefully false to be mm-hmm. mocking. And that's why we, ca- we can't like take them seriously. But that's what becomes a problem is when these plays get interwoven and confused with actual biographical, actu- you know, quote unquote, actual biographical material. Mm-hmm. So we also have citations from later ancient grammarians and literary critics, as well as authors like Homer and Plato. We have the stories from Ovid, uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is a pretty well-known work that kind of pokes fun at everybody. Um, <laughs> everybody in ancient society, which is, again, another one of those things that you can't always quite take entirely Seriously, but it is interesting that these stories from Ovid were initially thought to be Sappho's own writings rather than kind of meant to be a little bit poking fun at her and probably not entirely accurate. Then we also have the Oxyrhynchus papyri, which is a group of manuscripts discovered in the late 19th and early 20th century near Oxyrhynchus, which is in Egypt. And they are dated from the Ptolemaic period, which is the 3rd century BCE, which we mentioned earlier, and then the Roman periods of Egyptian history, which is 32 BCE to 640 CE, followed by the Muslim conquest of Egypt. So some of these papyri have been used as cartonnage, which is a paper like, it's like paper mache basically, and Egyptians and Greeks used it for covering their sarcophagi and even book binding, but they're actual like pages of manuscripts. So it's like doing, it's like doing decoupage. Like if you take like newspaper clippings <laughs> and, you know, do decoupage just, stuff. I just love the idea that like we're finding like the, the most recent findings of Sappho are just like, oh, I found a Sappho poem on this coffin, <laughs> this, this decoupaged <laughs> coffin. Right. 
Can you imagine, like, doing, like, home arts and crafts and just being like, do-do-do-do-do, here's some Sappho. Right. Sappho, like, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go, Tumblr gays. Here's your new, uh, here's your new arts and crafts so you can sell on Etsy. Decopaged Sappho. I mean, it's not a bad idea. I'd buy it. Right? People would buy it. Absolutely. Can you imagine <laughs> having little her little fragmentary poems and those little, like, Earrings. They make like earrings with like book quotes and like necklaces. Yeah, Yeah, but have it just be like the resin. Yeah, yeah. Someone do that. Someone (laughs) not me. (laughs) We go for it, fans. (laughs) Go for it. Um. So yeah. So with that being said, with where we're getting this information, who actually was Sappho? Uh, Let's let's talk about the bio of Sappho of Lesbos, who lived maybe. Uh, from around 620 BCE to 560 BCE. Before we start, a disclaimer. Like the scattered fragments of her poetry, there's very little that we actually know for sure about Sappho's life and who she was. Like we were saying before with the sources, most of the tradition of her life we know from writers in later centuries are either singing her praises as a poetic genius or portraying her as a comedic promiscuous stock character. So the question of a comprehensive and consistent picture of Sappho is one that has plagued classicists and scholars for ages. So we are not going to be able to, you know, definitively say anything because this is what some people devote their entire lives to unraveling. All of the sources for the biographical traditions of Sappho are writings that can't necessarily be inherently trusted as fact, and she's a figure shrouded in mystery. As Mary Barnard says in her introduction to her translation of Sappho's fragments, I really liked this. We have heard a great deal about Sappho and we know almost nothing, mm. which is really fun. I feel like that's very Platonic. Like Plato, Plato yeah. and Socrates would like love that kind of like, we, we, we've heard, but we don't know. Like it's very philosophical. Yeah, it's, it makes her, I mean, it's, it's frustrating to not know. Uh-huh. But it also makes her like a mythic and larger than life figure, which I uh-huh. think is is really neat. Like we're going to get into the legend and reputation of Sappho so much more than what we know, quote unquote, for certain about Sappho. So right. here's what we can piece together and what's generally agreed upon by historians or what appear in various sources. You wanna you wanna start us off, Gretchen? Yes. So Sappho was an archaic Greek lyric poet who's one of the only renowned women poets of antiquity. As we as Lee just mentioned, we can date her life to somewhere around six twenty to six thirty BCE on the island of Lesbos, but it's not actually known where she died. Some sources say she was born and lived on the city of Mytilene. Herodotus and Aristotle chiefly among them. And there are others like the Testimonia who say she was from Eresus. She was most likely part of an aristocratic family that was well honored in Lesbos. And there is an ancient inscription called the Parian Marble, which mentions her family's exile to Sicily sometime between 604 to 595 BCE. Uh, the Oxyrhynchus papyrus from around 200 CE and the Suda both agree that Sappho had a mother named Cleiss. And also a daughter by the same name, and two preserved fragments of Sappho's poetry actually refer to a Kleiss, and in that she specifically refers to her as her daughter. Her father was referred to with as many as ten different names in tradition. 
Most of the frequently cited ones note him as uh, Scamandronimus or Scamander, which just makes me think of Newt Scamander. I know. I immediately was like, <laughs> Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, like we mentioned before, the 2014 Oxyrhynchus Papyrus revealed that she had three brothers called Lacarus, Erigius, and Charaxus, the latter of whom, Charaxus, uh, had a somewhat scandalous relationship with a courtesan that Sappho wrote about in one of her poems, and she was, like, reproaching him for his wanton behavior, like, hey, don't go off on a boat with this courtesan. What are you doing? That's irresponsible. I'm your big sister, and blah, 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 blah. Can I so just say that, like, her brother's <laughs> name sound like like the three dragons from Aegon the Conqueror and his wife in A Song of Ice and Fire, if anyone knows what I'm talking about. Like, their names are, like... You know, Balerion and Vagar and Meraxes, and here we have like Laricus and Erigius and Caraxes. And I was like, oh, those sound like dragons. That's cool. fun. <laughs> she had dragon brothers. That's nice. Right. <laughs> um, in later Hel- Hellenistic sources, there are mentions of a husband named Kirkulos, though the reputability of these sources are highly specked. We'll get into Kirkulos later. There's also considerable speculation on Sappho's social role. Many have suggested she held some sort of schoolmistress or matron role for a group of girls. Or was this a circle of her lovers and companions? Who knows? Mm-hmm. She was most likely past middle age when she died, and in at least one poem, she complains about graying hair and creaky knees and bones. Though, I mean... To be fair, I'm in my mid-30s, and I have gray hair <laughs> and creaky bones, so who knows? Maybe okay. she was just gay and tired. Fair, but also ancient Greek. Like, 30 was definitely middle-aged. <laughs> Damn let's, it. Let's be real. The life let's expectancy was a little high. The life expectancy uh-huh. in ancient Greece was probably not as... Robust is right. right. 21st Though, century. Uh, details about her death. We don't really know when or how, really. There are stories created in later centuries about how she leapt to her death off of the Lucidian cliffs in an act of desperation caused by unrequited love. Again, we'll come back to that. But it is worth noting that other than this tale, which originated in the Roman poet Ovid, there's not really anything to connect Sappho with Lucas and the Lucidian cliffs. The Palatine Anthology actually names a different place for her death. There's like an epitaph for her that says, Aeolian Earth, you cover Sappho, who among the immortal muses is celebrated as the mortal muse, which heavily implies that she died on Lesbos because Aeolia is the name of the Greek dialect, which is spoken on Lesbos. So there is a monument in one of the cities that's claimed for her birth, Eresus, which claims also be the site where she died. But I mean, this was a couple thousand years ago. You know, people claim to know where, like, the tomb of King David is, and we're like, I don't know. Yeah. So, there are a couple different places. She was probably middle-aged, and she died. That's all we know. Probably was not leaping from a cliff. All right, cool. Episode over. Great. Yay, that's all we know. (laughs) Yay, that's all we know. Uh, Soik. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We've got many more pages of outline, folks. <laughs> many more pages. Uh, so, works and influence. What did Sappho actually do other than, like, have brothers and maybe die at some point? Um, <laughs> who's to say? She wrote around 10,000 lines of poetry. And four centuries after her death, the Library of Alexandria cataloged nine volumes of her writing. She was among the canon of nine lyric poets most highly esteemed by scholars of the Library of Alexandria. She was the only woman to be so, which is 
fucking cool. Could we take a moment to cry again about the Library of Alexandria? Because I feel yes, like whenever, <laughs> let's take a moment of silence. Let's take a moment of silence for the Library of Alexandria. It makes me sad to think yeah. about the Library of Alexandria. <laughs> uh, all the yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, okay, uh, so, of those 10,000 lines, how many do we have? We have... We have about 650 lines of poetry from Sappho, and they're broken up in fragments, sometimes only containing a word or two. There's there's literally a Sappho fo- fragment that just says celery. Right. So, um, oh, yeah, it's super right for shitposting. <laughs> yeah. She's credited with creating a very a specific poetic meter named, appropriately, the Sapphic Stanza after her, which is comprised of two verses of 11 syllables and a third verse starting the same way and continuing with five additional syllables, which comprise the last line. It's kind of hard to explain. We'll put a visual representation of it on our website. The syllables alternate between long and short, creating this musical rhythm. Because, in addition to being a poet, Sappho was an accomplished musician, and her works were actually meant to be performed to music played on a lyre. Hence, lyric poetry. If you didn't know where the word lyric came from, now you do. Liar. She frequently mentions music and songs in her poetry, and she even, there's like one fragment that's like her talking about her liar and bringing things to life, and Vaz paintings almost always depict her with the lyre in hand. She's credited with the creation of three different musical instruments. The plectron, which we had mentioned before, which is an instrument for picking the lyre, and that's noted in the Suda. She also apparently invented a new type of lyre altogether called the pectus, and a musical mode called the Mixolydian mode, so Lydian, Lydia, Greece, a musical scale that was adopted by tragic poets and evolved throughout the centuries and was even in use through the Middle Ages as well as into the modern period. I bet there's like a YouTube video of some of the Mixolydian mode. Oh, Let's there see is. If we can try it. Yeah, we can try it. We'll definitely make sure we put that in our uh, show notes so that you guys can, you know, engage with that. Yeah, it's it's still used. So her poetry was so prolific in antiquity that one Greek author, writing 300 years after her death, predicted that quote the white columns of Sappho's lovely song endure and will endure, speaking out loud as long as ships sail from the Nile. And her poems were still being copied and circulated as late as the 3rd century CE. And much of the papyrus with her writings on it actually come from the hands of scribes hundreds of years after her death. We're unsure of whether Sappho's poetry was ever written down during her time or if it was passed down in oral tradition. But it's pretty cool that like almost a thousand years later, after she lived, people were still copying and circulating her poems. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean. That's how prolific she was. Right. She was on the level of Homer and Plato. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're not just saying that. Like, people at the time when she was living or immediately after thought of her as on the level of Homer and Plato, which is why it is upsetting to think about the fact that, at least when I studied history, so much emphasis is placed on, you know, Homer and Plato and very little on Sappho. And yet in the ancient world, like, she was just as important as they were. Mm-hmm. as artists, and yet you don't get as much time spent on her. Right. Gee, I wonder why. Ah, <clears throat> yeah. Fuck the patriarchy. Patriarchy! So let's get into why she's so prolific. Like, why is this lady with a liar so uh, esteemed? Let's talk about the poetry. It's all yes. about the yearning. 
Yes. Especially today that I have, I have been seeing, at least on things like Tumblr, especially a huge revival of interest in Sappho's poetry, not just Sappho as a person, but like her poetry in particular. And most of it seems to be really about the kind of queer yearning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the best descriptions that I found in my research of those who don't like Sappho is from a book called The Lesbian Liar, which is in our resource list. And the author says that any shame cast on Sappho's poetry from her sexuality isn't from the poetry itself or its expressions, as they are, quote, too frank and healthy to comfort any attempt to degrade them. It comes from those whose restricted sympathies are allowed to choke their pleasure in poetry. So if you don't like Sappho because she was a lesbian, you're just a narrow-minded bigot. Yeah. Basically, if you don't like her poetry because because <laughs> she's a lesbian, that's just because you're a bigot, not because her poetry is bad. She's actually an amazing poet. <laughs> yeah. On the actual body of Sappho's poetry, like we mentioned above, the majority of what has survived is only in fragments, and there exists only one complete poem in the canon. One. One out of that 10,000 lines of poetry. We have one poem that we know is complete. It's usually referred to as poem or fragment one, titled, you know, hymn or ode to Aphrodite, depending on the translation. And so to start off the conversation about poetry, we wanted to bring in somebody very special. If you are a Xena fan, you have heard her voice before, you have seen her. She is Aphrodite herself. We brought on Alexandra Tidings to come and chat about Sappho with us because she is also a queer history nerd. And what better area for her to come in and do some stuff with us. So we're going to have her do a lovely reading of him to Aphrodite and then we'll launch into our conversation. Immortal Aphrodite on your intricately brocaded throne, child of Zeus, weaver of wiles, this I pray. Dear lady, don't crush my heart with pains and sorrows. But come here, if ever before, when you heard my far-off cry, you listened, and you came, leaving your father's house, yoking your chariot of gold. Then beautiful swift sparrows led you over the black earth from the sky through the middle air, whirling their wings into a blur. Rapidly they came. And you, O blessed goddess, a smile on your immortal face, asked what had happened this time. Why did I call again? And what did I especially desire for myself in my frenzied heart? Who this time am I to persuade to your love? Sappho, who is doing you wrong? For even if she flees, soon she shall pursue. And if she refuses gifts, soon she shall give them. If she doesn't love you, soon she shall love, even if she's unwilling. Come to me now once again and release me from grueling anxiety, all that my heart longs for fulfill, and be yourself my ally in love's battle. We'll talk more about this poem, because there's some really, really interesting turns of phrase that reference some themes at the time that Sappho was writing this, but we want to use that as kind of like a jumping off point to dive into the world of Sappho's poetry. 
Hey folks, Lee popping in here just to say that we also had a really wonderful extended conversation about Sappho and her poetry, specifically with Alex, and we're going to be showing that to you in a bonus episode that'll be coming out soon. We just couldn't fit it in the episode. Um, I also want to let you guys know that we will be discussing that poem a little bit more at length and kind of addressing a little bit of the more yikesy lines in it. But until then, here's what we have to say more about the world of Sappho and her poetry between Gretchen and I. Edward Young in On Lyric Poetry writes, Sappho's muse is passionately tender and glowing, like oil set on fire. She is soft and warm in excess. Mm. She's the first extant Greek poet to write expressively about the feelings associated with love, which is huge. Uh, Sappho's poetry is distinct from the poetry of men at the time because it personalizes the physical manifestations of emotions. This is the first time we're seeing something like this, so personal, so visceral. In mm-hmm. describing the feelings of being in love and the feelings of yearning. It showcases an altogether different view of love than a male perspective. Uh, one scholar that we use in our sources, Ella Hasselvert, notes, quote, Sappho's fragments show us eros, which is love, and pleasure for their own sake. Not as an exchange of property, the exploitation of one for the sake of the other, or in order to achieve virtue in the eyes of a moralizing philosopher like Plato or Aristotle. In her poems, the descriptions of women's looks are in fact descriptions of the feelings they evoke, Mm -hmm. which is so neat. There are so many elements that you see where she's describing someone's beauty as they are related to nature and the feelings of being so struck by this person come from the way that they make her feel, not necessarily their innate qualities. Mm -hmm. One of the most profound examples of this kind of nature of Sappho's expression is perhaps her best known verse, which is Fragment 31. It was heralded by a first century CE author for the way the stanzas, quote, select and juxtapose the most striking, intense symptoms of erotic passion. As Sappho looks jealously on a man and a woman as they converse, envious of the opportunity to woo the girl. So this is Fragment 31, translated by Anne Carson. He seems to me equal to the gods, that man, whoever he is opposite you, and sits and listens close to your sweet speaking, and lovely laughing, oh, it puts the heart in my chest on wings, for when I look at you, even for a moment, no speaking is left in me. No, tongue breaks and thin fire is racing under skin, and in eyes no sight and drumming fills ears, and cold sweat holds me and shaking grips me, greener than grass. I am and dead, or almost I seem to me. But all is to be dared, because even a person of poverty... And that's where the fragment ends. (laughs) Like, literally... Literally a volcano under the skin, fire racing. It's it's also it's also the um it's also a Sappho poem that is referenced in Xena, so I really like that one. No spoilers, <laughs> but um yeah. Her uh her words quote are healing enterprises, linguistic attempts to spirit the mind suffering from desire or separation away into a more satisfactory or pleasurable awareness, drawing upon the medicinal properties of daydream, memory, sensuality, Aphrodite, and metaphor to accomplish this. So that was from Dubin. So it's all about 
the yearning, folks. Right. Yep. So that's what I find so fascinating about her current legacy is this, like, queer yearning for the 20th first century queer woman. Like, the number of times I see queer women, like, reblogging Sappho's poetry and just being, like, you know, a mood. Like, this <laughs> idea of, like, pining from a distance after a beautiful woman just, like, feels like a super <laughs> relatable <Yeah>. experience. <laughs> um So, because I'm a nerd, I follow a couple of queer classicists on Tumblr, and one of my favorites is Thudaloo, and she says, Lads, is there anything truly gayer than the sheer yearning you experience when reading a fragmentary text? And yes, yep, Mm -hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, the very process of reading Sappho, I mean, like, what we have in itself, like, the language encapsulates the yearning, but it's the very process of reading something that is so fragmentary you're sitting there and you want you want to know more i mean we'll pick right. we'll put pictures up of these papyri and it's so heartbreaking and so frustrating because you're like I, if that if that tiny piece of paper was still here i would know what that says mm-hmm. right so one of the biggest I don't know, I guess, big mood among <laughs> Sappho. There was one of the poems that jumped out of me is one called Kypris Song, which is translated by Diane Rayer, which is, How can someone not be hurt and hurt again, Queen Aphrodite by the person one loves, and wishes above all to ask back? What do you have in mind to idly rend me, shaking from desire, loosening my knees? Not. You, I wish, to suffer this. I know this for myself. And you're like, ah. all of those pauses I put in are like fragments. And you're like, ah, 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 <laughs> tell ah. me the thing. Ah. Or you have a uh, fragment 34, also translated by Diane Rayer. Stars around the fair moon hide away their radiant form whenever in fullness she lights the earth. So, yes, it's about the moon, but we all know the moon is gay. And uh, the she is grammatically ambiguous, so it makes it sound like the stars themselves are hiding because the beloved shines so bright. Right. So, yeah, it's a poem about the moon, but it's also a poem about a pretty lady who si- shines brighter than the stars. Ah! Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> <Or> just- uh, <laughs> yeah. fragment 36. I yearn and I desire. Like, that. that's the whole fragment. And you're like, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, fragment 41, also translated by Diane Ryer. For you, beautiful women, my mind never changes. Yep. Some of these are just like, yeah, I understand what you're going for, Sappho. I don't even need the rest of the poem. I just know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so fragment 47, also translated by Diane Ryer. Love shook my senses like wind crashing on mountain oaks. Or uh, fragment 48, also by Ryer. You came... I yearned for you, and you cooled my senses that burned with desire. This is one of my favorites. Fragment 51, again from Rare. I don't know what to do. I am of two minds. Mood. Mood. Yes, yes. Put that on my wall. Lads, is there anything gayer than not being able to make a decision? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Fragment 168b, also by Rare. You'll note that most of the translations we have are by Diane Rare or Anne Carson. They are two of the the most esteemed translators of Sappho and two of the most recent. They're also the ones that really dive into the ambiguousness of uh, gender in the poems, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. But this one says, The moon and the Pleiades have set, 
Half the night is gone. Time passes. I sleep alone. Oh, so drama. So sad. Some of these I put in here, I love. They're not about yearning, but it's mostly just Sappho being kind of mean, which I enjoy <laughs> that, like, she wrote, like, mean lyric poetry as well as, like, yearning lyric poetry. Oh, yeah. She could be bitchy. It's great. Yeah. This is one of her exes, apparently, I think. It sounds like. Fragment 91. <laughs> I never met anyone more irritating, Irana, than you. And and I liked this translation that I have from Anne Carson, which makes it sound even more dramatic. So we have, like, I've never met anyone more irritating. Anne Carson translated as, never more damaging, oh, Irana, have I encountered you. Damn. <laughs> never more damaging. I love it. So, fragment 55, also translated by Rayer. When you die, you'll lie dead. No memory of you, no desire will survive, since you've no share in the Parian roses. But once flown away, you'll wander among the obscure dead, invisible even in the house of Hades. Like, damn, Sappho, like, who wronged you? Is this, like, Irana? Like, are you still talking about that same person? Like, <laughs> talking about this lady? <laughs> when you're dead, no one's going to remember you. Yeah. Which is, which is true, because we have this poem, but we have no idea who it's about. So... <laughs> Yeah, she wasn't always happy that she liked the ladies so much. Like mm. like in this fragment 26, translated by Anne Carson, this one is like super fragmented. But what we have left of it is, Frequently, for those I treat well are the ones who most of all harm me. Crazy, you, I want to suffer. In myself, I am aware of this. God damn! <laughs> it like reads, even without all the fragments, it reads like an actual poem and that's one of the things that we find is really interesting about Sappho is you can take the fragments that are left and read them as if that is the entire poem mm -hmm. and yeah. sometimes they make sense sometimes they don't but this is one of those ones that does kind of make sense even without even yeah. without it <laughs> uh you want to do fragment 130 yeah so fragment 130 also translated by Diane Rayer once again, love, that loosener of limbs, bittersweet and inescapable, crawling thing, seizes me. Crawling thing. It's so good. Yeah. What Probably one of like the most heartbreaking poems, heartbreaking breakup poems to ever exist is Fragment 94, where uh, Sappho reminds the woman who is leaving her, perhaps to marry, of the deep feelings and pleasant times they shared. Huh. The, year the yearning, the, the, the language in this poem gets me. So this is Fragment 94, translated by Anne Carson, with a, a few edits at the end by me, just because I, I like the ending from another translation better, and it's more clear. I simply want to be dead. Well, starting off strong. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Sappho. Right? I simply want to be dead. Weeping, she left me with many tears and said this. Oh, how badly things have turned out for us, Sappho. I swear, against my will, I leave you. And I answered her, Rejoice, go and remember me, for you know how we cherished you. But if not, I want to remind you, and beautiful times we had, for many crowns of violets and roses at my side you put on, and many woven garlands made of flowers around your soft throat. And with sweet oil, costly, you anointed yourself, and on a soft bed, delicate, you would let loose your longing, and there was no dance, no holy place from which we were absent. Uh, this mm. is generally thought by classicists to be one of the most overt 
and only explicit mentions of love between women. That line, um, you know, and on a soft bed, delicate, you would let loose your longing. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are like, <laughs> there are scholars that, you know, say, oh, well, Sappho was just writing about gals being pals, but they don't really know what to say about this poem. So, hey, if you don't like Sappho because she's a lesbian, you're a bigot. <laughs> <laughs> I want that on a button. Right? Like, or like, yeah, stickers. It'd be funny if lesbian was capitalized, like, lesbian was capitalized with a lesbian, with a lesbian L. Wow, with a capital L. <laughs> lesbian L. That's what we should call it from now on. Capital L's are lesbian L's. Lesbian L's. Yes, I like it. So there are a couple of other interesting fragment uh, aspects to Sappho's poetry. Like, kind of as we mentioned earlier, some of her fragments, some of her fragmentary poems are even more beautiful or haunting as fragments than maybe they might have even been in their full poems. Um, For when you are gay and tired, fragment S-A-18-C, translated by Diane Rayer, I may flee girls and youth. I may flee girls slash youth. (laughs) You're like, I am old and gay and tired. (laughs) Um, For when you just want that boy out of your life, fragment 214B, again, translated by Diane Rayer, Away from him, as destined. (laughs) Or Fragment 38, translated by Anne Carson, You burn me. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So much in three little words. Fragment 178, again translated by Rare, Fonder of children than that shapeshifter Gello. I mean, I don't really know who Gello is, but they sound like someone you don't want to hear screaming in the mall at two in the morning. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, fragment 169, also translated by Rayer. May I lead? Sounds like the ancient version of let me live. <laughs> May I lead? <laughs> yeah. Or fragment 129A, translated by Carson. But me you have forgotten, or you love some man more than me. Wow, Sappho. Tell, tell us how you really feel about straight girls. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Sappho had several experiences of falling in love with a straight girl. Yeah, that's a mood. Um, <laughs> and then you have uh, Fragment 25, also translated by Carson, which I love. Like, it's literally just quit, luxurious woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we also, there's like even more flower motifs in the poetry like we saw in fragment 94 gay flower crowns anyone the uh the association of violets with queer women and queer love comes back to sappho and uh we'll actually have a whole other episode coming up about queer symbols so stay tuned and we go into that a little bit but there's a whole bunch of flowers in this y'all like fragment 122 translated by carson Gathering flowers, so very delicate a girl. Or fragment 125, again translated by Carson, I used to weave crowns. Or we have fragment 19, this one translated by Mary Barnard. Tomorrow you had better use your soft hands, Dika, to tear off dill shoots, to cap your lovely curls. She who wears flowers attracts the happy graces. They turn back from a bare head. So, yeah. If you want happy, wear a flower crown. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. <gasps> I should have worn my flower crown for this episode. <gasps> I have a flower have. crown. Let me get it. <laughs> you you keep talking. I'm gonna All right. It. I am going to talk about the famous weaving poem and bias in translations. So according to Dan Rayer, this is how the poem is translated. Sweet mother, I cannot weave. 
Slender Aphrodite has overcome me with longing for a girl. So, all right, y'all are going to get a little lesson in translation. So the word girl in that last line, Slender Aphrodite has overcome me with longing for a girl, is elsewhere. You might see it elsewhere translated as boy or youth or young lover. So why is there a difference? I mean, boy and girl are not the same thing. So why would one translator use boy and another one use girl? Well, the Greek word there is paidos, which means youth or child or simply young person. Greek has three grammatical genders, which is male and female and neuter. And I use the word grammatical gender because they're not always, they don't always translate to biological gender. Sometimes they do. Sometimes the grammatical gender of a word is equivalent to the biological gender of that, you know, entity in real life, like a female horse or mare, something along those lines. But Sometimes it's purely just a grammatical thing. So paidos is neuter. It's in the neuter gender, meaning it carries no gendered connotations for the person being described. It literally just means like a young, like teenager or younger. That's, that's what the word means um, with no indication for gender. So as a translator, you have to make a choice. Do you go the gender neutral route in English? Because English doesn't have grammatical gender in the way Greek does. Do you go with youth or young lover? And that's why you might see poems translated with a gender neutral word, which would be my choice as a translator, because I would want to preserve the lack of gender in the original. But you could also decide to pick a gender for the word. But as a translator, if you're picking a gender, it means you're making an assumption about the object of Sappho's affection, which is not a neutral choice to make as a translator because you're making assumption about their sexuality. You have to decide which gender she might be more likely to be in love with (laughs) in the poem. (laughs) So if you're working on the assumption that she's heterosexual or you just don't want her to be gay, you would pick boy or young man. But (laughs) that goes against most of Sappho's poetry, which has the object of affection and desire being a woman. So if you're going to go a gendered route, the choice that more accurately reflects Sappho's poetry as a whole, even if you're going to say, well, maybe she's not actually gay. She was like assuming the role of a male character when she's writing her poems, whatever, which is bullshit. Totally bullshit. (laughs) Totally bullshit. But even if you want to go that route, if you want to be more faithful to Sappho's poetry as a whole and you know, very likely her personal attraction, which we'll get into, girl or young woman is the better translation. But really, all of this was to say translating Sappho isn't straightforward or even all that straight. Um, (laughs) But also translators make choices. And the choices that they make can come from bigoted or moralistic places, even if they're not aware of it. Like the translator might not be aware of their own biases when they're picking a word. But that's why I always advocate finding a translation that includes the original language. That way you can look things up for yourself or something that's very well annotated. Because that way, if you're confused or want to know a little bit more, you might not be able to read Greek or even know Greek. But if you can look at the little symbol, you know, look at the the alphabet and then look it up in a Greek-English dictionary, then you can know for yourself, oh, this word is actually gender neutral. So this translator who used, you know, a male word was making a translation choice and it's actually a gender neutral. So it could very well be girl and probably is more likely to have a feminine object um, of affection (laughs) rather than a male one. So anyway, it's just an aside to talk about why translation is important (laughs) and how... If you are reading Sappho or really any ancient thing in ancient text in English, 
you have to be aware that translators make choices. So don't be discouraged if you see something, a, a Sappho poem saying blah, 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 and I'm, you know, consumed with love for this boy and be like, wait, everybody told me Sappho was gay. I'm really sad now. It's a translation. Right. It's, it's a translation choice. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Lee is now wearing a lovely flower crown that you guys can't see, but it's delightful. It's great. I got it at Pride. Yay. So continuing in this thread, the very fact that Sappho chooses to use the neuter pronouns so often is one of the ways in which her writing diverges so much from male poets at the time. Male Greek love poets were far less vague and abstract in their writing. They almost always used masculines rather than neuters, because of course, why would anyone want to talk about anything other than men? And as we'll see, male-male love was spiritualized by Socrates, and that's that's what the male poets would have been celebrating. Yeah, there was a, there was a quote that you read earlier that talked about the moralizing of male love within mm-hmm. the poetic tradition, and so yeah, like Socrates and male poets talk about the strong spiritual bond between between men. So, and that you know became a part of the love poem tradition, and yeah, they were less interested in in women as objects of love and affection. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast, Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Right. Because patriarchy. Yeah. And so much <laughs> patriarchy. We really need a patriarchy jingle at this point, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh So much of the yearning and language in Sappho's poetry is different than the metaphors and imagery being referenced by male poets of the era, too, and yet evokes and references them at the same time, which I think is really cool. There's a really fantastic breakdown of the physical world and surroundings represented in Sappho's poetry, which I highly recommend you read. We're going to put it in our sources, but it's by William Harris. He actually goes into, like, in the Ode to Aphrodite, you know, saying like intricately brocaded throne, dapple colored Aphrodite, and specifically talking about that potentially having been just what Sappho would have seen walking into a temple to Aphrodite. Mm. But he makes an interesting connection between Sappho and Homer in Hymn to Aphrodite. He discusses the the last line where Sappho pleads for Aphrodite to come to her aid as an ally in battle, saying, quote, be my battle ally for a woman who never goes to war. The word makes you pause, sense something strange. Where is the battle and when was Aphrodite herself so soft and gentle an ally in battle? How is Sappho's world connected with the epic of the Iliad scene? We must go back to a clue in an earlier portion of the poem. The doves flew down, quote, over the black earth, a phrase any modern or ancient reader would know as a phrase from Homer, the chronicler of battles and allies. And here's the really important part. So Sappho's world is the same black earth of epic struggles. It has its battles too, but they are different kind of battles. Battles of women, battles of giving birth, of infants dying, of love refused, battles of the heart, and for these, of course, Aphrodite is the only ally, the best mothering and loving ally. This is the battle of living, of life. Mm, I love that. I love this article. It's so cool. We see this again in the opening lines to Fragment 16, 
And what is perhaps one of my favorite lines of Sappho, it's, it starts, some men say an army of horse, and some men say an army on foot, and some men say an army of ships is the most beautiful thing on the black earth. But I say it is what you love. Hmm. And again, she's ah! referencing that black earth. The black earth, exactly. That's that's one thing that I thought was so fascinating is that she's constantly referencing her contemporaries and subverting them. Right. I mean, it's a very feminist, like, mm-hmm. all you men are out here talking about how battles and army and blood and all of this stuff is beautiful. But what I find beautiful is the object of my affection, is what I love, is what I care about. That's right. what real beauty is. That's really cool. Uh, yeah, it's it is literally like even beyond the like the specific like big mood yearnings. That is one of my favorite lines that I have ever seen translated. Right, it's right. so cool. It immediately, I mean, because I'm such a big nerd, I'm like, oh, Star Wars. It's like the Last Jedi with Rose Pico <laughs> saying like, it's not about you know fighting what you hate. It's about saving, what, saving you what you love. And I'm like Rose Tico, okay, Rose, Rose Tico, Space Sappho. Yes, Space Sappho. Yes. So here's another beautiful example of Sappho subverting the male tradition is her use of the phrase rosy-fingered moon in fragment 96, which is altering the repeated Homeric refrain of rosy-fingered dawn, which at the time had almost become cliche in the bardic tradition. But now she is conspicuous among Lydian women, as sometimes at sunset the rosy-fingered moon surpasses all the stars and her light stretches over salt sea equally and flower-deep fields. So Harris notes on Sappho's alteration, the difference between the two human worlds. One is the world of men with swords and fleets of ships over the Homeric black earth. The other is the world of women and lovers and what the heart desires. So, <sighs> yeah. That's my favorite part. It's so good. Yeah. And that reminds me of that poem I read earlier about like, as the moon surpasses the stars. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is moon, I would have to look at the original Greek, um, but moon... She could be referencing either, well, moon was a feminine goddess in Mm -hmm. Greek tradition. Like the goddess, the deity of the moon was was feminine. So there's another layer to her, like comparing like beautiful women to the moon. So you have Luna, but you also have Artemis is a moon goddess. And what I love about that is that Artemis is a, I mean, I guess you would say she's a celibate. Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote, (laughs) celibate. You can't see my, like, sarcastic eye roll and scare quotes. But that's just because she doesn't have a male consort. But Artemis is is often associated with queer women. And there are traditions around Artemis that seem to be associated with women-loving women. So Mm -hmm. it is, again, interesting that you have Sappho, a woman-loving woman, comparing women to the moon, who is associated with women-loving women women (laughs) via Artemis. Um, But Artemis is also, like, an archer deity, so you've got, like, layers of, like, martial imagery in there as well. It's just, like, fat, like, the layers here are so... Reasons reasons why the moon is gay by Gretchen Jones. (laughs) I mean, the moon is gay, Mm -hmm. yes. Always in So I, I forgot to mention beforehand when we were talking about like the beauty of, of Sappho's fragments being turned into their own type of poetry. Um, I really want someone with, uh, I really want someone with coding experience to please, for my sake, create a Sappho shitpost generator. Please take, <laughs> I will give them to you, take the one or two word fragmentary poems 
of Sappho and create a generator where you can click a randomizer button and it'll put three or four together and you can create the best shit posts like celery. I like that woman or something like that. It's great. Um, I try it yourself. Um, I've been doing that for the last couple days, just going through my book and like flipping to one page and then flipping to another page and coming up with fun shit posty Sappho stuff. So that's my little aside. Someone please on the internet. Uh, Please. do that for me. <laughs> I feel like it would be a pretty great Twitter. I bot. literally ha- <laughs> like Sappho shit post. Right. Bot. I literally had to. I I googled because I was like, somebody has to have made this, right? No, no one has. You would please think. be the first to make it. <sighs> And send it straight to me. Someone, please. I, I, yes. Or work with yes. me. Email us at historyiskpodcast at gmail.com <laughs> and work with me to make it. I just don't have the technical wherewithal, but I do have the Sappho wherewithal. Anyway, that's my aside. <laughs> All right. And that brings us to our word of the week. We wouldn't be able to go a whole episode about Sappho without diving into the fact that we owe very much of the language we ascribe to female love to her. So let's talk about how lesbian and sapphic came to refer to Lady Lovin, and not just that love-struck liar plucker from Lesbos. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> that is a tongue twister. Uh, you want to start with sapphic or sapphism? Yes. So, sapphism is a term far older and more widespread than its counterpart, lesbian. So... We'll start with Sapphic. Perhaps only eclipsed in historical reach by tribidism from the Greek and Latin words to rub, Sappho's legacy and the use of Sapphism as a synonym for love between women stuck through the centuries across the world. An 11th century poet in Muslim Spain even lear- earned the moniker, quote, the Arab Sappho, and a Japanese loanword referring to female sexuality, Safuo, was coined in the 1900s. The use of the term Sapphic, Sapphist, Sapphism in describing erotic love between women began to rise in prominence during the 15th century when there was a renewed interest in her poetry and when Ovid's treatise was discovered and translated. In 18th century London, the terms Sapphist and Tommy were used as the high and low cultural terms for women with homoerotic interests, parallel to the words sodomite and molly for men at the time, and in referencing the ladies of Langolin, who we will get to because they're delightful. Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponsonby, who were in a romantic romantic friendship during the late 18th century, gossip diarist Hester Thrale Piozzi referred to the two women as, quote, damned sapphists, unquote. I want to be a damned sapphist. I am. I am a damned sapphist. It's a beautiful. That's another <laughs> good, good, like, pinback button. Yes. Damned sapphist. Uh, so let's get into lesbian. As we've mentioned several times on this podcast before, the very notion of homosexuality as identity is an extremely new concept in history, and the same pattern falls specifically for the term lesbian. Lesbian wasn't used to refer to anything other than someone or something from the Isle of Lesbos until about the mid-19th century, so it's very new. The the mm. first recorded instance of lesbian being used similarly to its modern meaning is from William King in his satire The Toast, which was published in 1732 and revised in 1736, so a little bit 
earlier when he referred to lesbians with a capital L, the lesbian L, as women who, quote, loved women in the same manner as men love them. Another one of the first instances of lesbian being used in a homoerotic nature is from 1875, when writer George Saintsbury, writing on Baudelaire's poetry, refers to his, quote, lesbian studies, also with a capital L, including his poem about the passion of Delphine, about the love between two women. Uh, in 1890, lesbian was used, and this is really where we see a shift, in a medical dictionary as, quote, lesbian love, using the lowercase, acting as an adjective to describe tribidism, which is perhaps one of the, you know, oldest terms for women and women love. And that was something that you did. It was a behavior. It was an act. It mm-hmm. was, you know, as we've talked about before, it wasn't an identity. Uh, by the turn of the 20th century, the terms lesbian, invert, and homosexual were interchangeable with sapphist and sapphism, and the use of lesbian rose to prominence specifically in medical literature. We see the increasing medicalization mm-hmm. of lesbianism. By 1925, it had been recorded as a noun, kind of for the first time, meaning the female equivalent of a sodomite. So this is where we start to see it solidifying a little bit more into something that someone is rather than something that someone does. Early sexologists described lesbianism as a form of insanity and hysteria. Thanks, Havelock Ellis and Richard von Kraft Ebbing. Thank you. Um, And Mm. while some posited it was a lifelong condition, others, Ellis, grr, Uh, believed it was a neurological condition that would go away once a woman had experienced marriage and a, quote, practical life. (sighs) (sighs) Hmm. Okay. Hmm. So. Sure. Uh, With the widespread reading of the work of Ellis and Kraft Ebbing and the assertion of homosexuality being an innate condition of of difference, uh, queer men and women began to accept this designation of different and created their own social circles around it. So thus birthing the homosexual and lesbian circles so popular in Berlin and Paris in the 20s and 30s. So the creation of like queer as culture. Yay! Yay! Uh, the term lesbian became more popular specifically as an identity marker and kind of outside the zone of medical language in the 1960s and 1970s with feminist movements and the very deliberate adoption of lesbian as like a political feminist identity. But that's a whole other episode. But we wanted to give a right. nice little, you know, Mini, mini history on how did ladies who love ladies come to be called lesbians? There you go. Right. And yeah, up until the 60s and 70s, it's also important to note, which I know that we've noted elsewhere, that lesbian didn't mean exclusively. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about, it was the umbrella term for any and all women who engaged in loving, you know, either sexual acts or loving relationships yeah. with other women regardless of whether or not they were attracted to any other right. gender it was just like because it was about the behavior and the act it was used to just describe women who engaged in that behavior or act regardless of what other behavior they mm-hmm. might engage in elsewhere yeah it wasn't until the 60s and 70s that it became to mean exclusively women identified in persons being attracted to other right. women specifically like aligned with like lesbian separatist feminism and right. all of that so Again, a whole other episode, but yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's very new. Yay. So, that's our words. Yes. Back to our regularly scheduled content. Uh, we are going to move on to talk about Sappho's legacy and reputation, which is where we're going to get into some fun and interesting uh, parodies of Sappho. 
As Lee briefly kind of mentioned above, Sappho has a kind of a twofold reputation. On the one hand, she was highly regarded in antiquity and was considered the most brilliant female poet of her time. But on the other, later sources mock and reproach her, painting a picture of Sappho as a frivolous, promiscuous woman relegated to the lines of Athenian comedies, which doesn't surprise anybody that someone that a woman who was highly regarded and valued eventually get, becomes you know mocked and derided <laughs> and made fun of because patriarchy but on the positive side plato referred to her as the 10th muse in the palatine anthology which is an anthology of greek poems dating back to the 7th century bce does as well saying memory who is the mother of the muses herself was astonished when she heard the honey sweet sappho wondering whether mankind possessed a 10th muse she is also referred to as the equal of any god and the ultimate in her craft. You have established the beginning and end of all lyric song, quote unquote. She is considered, quote, the sweetest of love pillows to the burning young. Hmm. Mm. Uh, Plutarch, who lived from 46 to 120 CE, also counted her among the muses, writing, quote, Sappho utters words truly mingled with fire and gives vent through her song to the heat that consumes her heart. And that she can, quote, heal the pain of love with the muse's melody. Ah. Hmm. Galen compared Sappho to Homer, writing, You have only to say the poet and the poetess, and everyone knows you mean Homer and Sappho. And that's the level that's the level that she was on. Right. Yeah. With Homer, whom everyone reads. So there's a remark from Greek philosopher Strabo. Sappho is an amazing thing. For we know in all of recorded history, not one woman who can even come close to rivaling her in the grace of her poetry. And I, I liked this story from a later author in the classical period uh, named Alien, who relates a legend about the Athenian lawmaker Solon the Wise, who was a contemporary of Sappho, writing, Solon of Athens, son of Existesides, after hearing his nephew singing a song of Sappho's over the wine, liked the song so much that he told the boy to teach it to him. When someone asked him why he was so eager, he replied, so that I may learn it and then die. <laughs> when the poetry is that good. Yep. I just got to learn this. And, and then then that is, my life has peaked. So, we're, you know, here's where we're getting into the kind of double nature of her legacy. In antiquity, she was held in high esteem. There is a separate story began to grow in later centuries, creating a tradition of her as a quote-unquote immoral and wanton bisexual woman. <laughs> so authors in antiquity didn't really seem to have any qualms with Sappho's homoeroticism, both in her writings and in her supposed real life, what we can glean about it, either because the only references to the love between girls from Lesbos and Sappho's poetry didn't seem reproachful, or they simply never referred to Sappho's homosexuality at all. It doesn't seem to be anything that they would have found disturbing or really to take note of as out of the ordinary. They just kind of accepted it at face value. The first sources that begin to hint at the development of Sappho's bad reputation come from the Athenian comedies of the 4th century BCE. So this is like a couple of hundred years. This is like 300 years after she's alive. Two, three hundred years. So... That's what we're working with here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, considering the lewd nature of these comedies, they were basically like 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 sex plays, basically. She probably wasn't, as phrased by scholar Marit Cavill, quote, described as a modest housewife. Instead, she was probably treated in these plays as a stock character of a lascivious woman with many partners. Attic comedians describe Sappho as short, with a dark complexion, and therefore ugly. Ah, there we are. Hello, classic Greek racism and colorism. Fuck, 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 colonialism. 
So yes. Uh, and man crazy. Apparently Sappho. Yeah, because because nothing nothing says man crazy like writing about yearning for yep. women. <laughs> yeah, the stage figure Sappho was depicted as a woman who exemplified an insatiable heterosexual promiscuity, an oversexed predator of men, which is just so laughable. Um, in fact, this is actually this was actually an ancient cliche about women from Lesbos at the time, way before the word lesbian brought up connotations of love between women. It was a blowjob joke. Um, in classical Greek, the verb uh, lesbazien, quote, to act like someone from Lesbos, actually meant performing fellatio, something for which inhabitants of Lesbos were thought to have a certain love for. Go figure. So if you called somebody oh a lesbian <laughs> in classical Greece, you were saying, man, that girl's real good at giving BJs. So, like the opposite I, I of know. what it means now, which is hilarious. Thank you, Sappho, for completely rewriting the history of a term. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, the early church in 1073 under Pope Gregory actually burned her works. Uh, well, I mean, I say actually, but it's it's thought to have. We don't really have conclusive evidence. Um, but one theologian at this time described Sappho as quote a sex crazed whore who sings of her own wantonness. Thanks, dude. Because you can't have women talking about their desires without them being, you know, sex right. craze. Yeah. So, so when we get to the Suda, the ancient encyclopedia from the 10th and 11th century that mentions Sappho a few times, we also see references and assertions that Sappho had a husband, a man named Kirklos from the island Andros. Hold tight. Uh, so surely, surely she can't be gay. She had a husband. But much like the legend of Sappho in the ferryman, in the ferryman Phaon, which Gretchen is going to talk about next, it's likely that this was an invention meant to distract from Sappho's homoerotic leanings and change her reputation. So there was a legend from Ovid that suggests she throws herself off of the Lucidian cliffs when her heart was broken by Phaon, who is a young ferryman. So the poem in question, the 15th Feroidae, was originally thought to be a genuine letter from Sappho to Phaon, and is by far one of the most influential documents in the history of the reception and reputation of Sappho, which eclipses many of Sappho's own fragments by the time it was translated and attributed to Ovid in the 15th century. According to Ovid's Sappho-Phaon epistle, Not Pyrrha's coterie, no Mithymna's girls beguile me now, nor any lesbian maiden, dazzling Sidros of no account, Anectoria and Attis, once embraced, are now disdained, and the hundred others, loved to my reproach, relinquished this their claim to callous you, Phaon, alone. Yet, at the same time, Ovid contradicts himself when he asks in another part of his works, What did Sappho of Lesbos teach but how to love maidens? Yet, Sappho herself was safe. Which implies that she taught other women about loving women, but wasn't herself a lover of women, even as he's talking about all of these female lovers that she's rejecting for Phaon, like, what is the truth, Ovid? Like, insert Oprah meme. So what is the truth? <laughs> like, yeah. And okay. it's just so funny. It's like, I mean, I say funny and frustrating because it's literally just the myth of, ah, yes, the man that can cure the woman of all of her lesbian love. Like, Ovid is literally mentioning her female companions, Anactoria, Attis, all of these women that she loved. She's like, ah, I'm, I'm not into these, these maidens anymore because I love you, Phaon. Yes. So what's interesting about this story, about throwing herself off of a cliff out of love for a ferryman, is that it may actually be connected to Aphrodite, who we know Sappho was devoted to and invoked in many of her poems. One of Aphrodite's other forms in the Roman tradition is that of Venus, whose uh, it's a planet 
everyone knows the planet Venus, whose orbit makes it look as if it's sometimes chasing after the sun in the evening because Venus sets after the sun sets when it's called the evening star or Hesperos in Greek. And at other times, Venus looks like it's being chased by the sun in the morning because it rises before the dawn, which is the morning star or Heosphoros in Greek. So Ovid himself explained this activity with the myth of Aphrodite and Phaeton. So if you're unfamiliar with this myth, Phaeton is the son of Helios, who is the sun god. Aphrodite falls in love with Phaeton, and Phaeton decides to try to drive his father's chariot. And when he does, he ends up losing control and plunging into the sea. Aphrodite, as the evening star, Venus, chases after him and then retrieves him from the water and raises him back up from the sea in the morning in the morning star. You can kind of see the astronomical reality behind this myth of like Aphrodite chasing the sun into the sea and then raising the sun back up. So Sappho throwing herself into the sea out of love for a ferryman, which is not so different from a chariot driver. It's just that his chariot is a boat, could also be Ovid's way of trying to give Sappho a death that mimics Aphrodite's love for Phaeton. I mean, it's like even the name, like Mm -hmm. Phaeton to Phaeon. So it's a small leap, you know, leap leap from the clip. (laughs) So it could be that Ovid, who calls Sappho a goddess among women, was trying to imitate the goddess in her death in this story. And is this immortalized in Ovid's works as like a true devotee of Aphrodite? Like she's she's such a good disciple of Aphrodite that even her death like mimics this, you know, myth of Aphrodite chasing down the sun into the sea out of love for the sea and then resurrecting mm-hmm. the sun. So it could be one of those things. It could also very well be the, like, trying to erase her sexuality. Um, but it was just interesting to me that, like, if Ovid made this story up, which it seems like he probably did, you can kind of see the pieces where he got mm-hmm. it from. Like, he's pulling from Aphrodite mythology to, like, create this story about Sappho in order to kind of, like, immortalize Sappho as, like, this perfect devotee of Aphrodite. She even mimics Aphrodite in her death. Right. Yeah, and I mean, like, around, around I think, Victorian times, this was the, the version of Sappho that was mostly disseminated like if you asked people in you know the 19th century early on about what they knew about Sappho they would probably talk about Phaon and the cliffs it was that hmm. that was mm-hmm. that prolific further complicating this uh, as a result of the ever evolving reputation of Sappho from this man crazy female lecher of attic comedies to this you know scornfully addressed uh, immoral woman lover of Roman times the contradictions of these literary reputations with the queer yearning in Sappho's poetry itself, it's safe to say that many ancient scholars were flummoxed, to say the least, at how to make sense of this mass of information and create a coherent picture of Sappho's life. Things didn't quite line up and make sense. So in doing so, authors tended to use one of three strategies, as classicist Glenn Most asserts. They either did duplication, narrativization, or condensation. And I want to talk about duplication, which is what most of the ancient scholars did to try to make sense of the stories. Ancient sources like the Nymphodorus in the 3rd century BCE declared that there must have been, of course, two Sapphos. (laughs) And assigning different features to each in order to create a a plausible story. One, 
of the poetess and the other of a sex worker. As Glenn Most notes, quote, the division of labor such a distinction tries to establish is manifest. On the one hand, the lyric Sappho retains the connections to family and female friends evidently mentioned in her surviving poems. On the other hand, the comic Sappho certainly could not have had so many male lovers if she had not been a professional prostitute. Anyone who thought the two were the same person would merely be a hapless victim of their inconvenient homonymy. Fortunately, an enlightened historical scholarship had discovered the difference and rescued the great poetess from unfair blame. Hmm. So the idea that how did all these things come up? Like, oh no, these are going to tarnish Sappho's beautiful reputation. Wait, there must have been two. In the Suda, there's a modification of this two Sappho theory. In this case, one Sappho still being distinguished by another by their profession, birthplace, and erotic interests, but kind of a, a more blurry line than what Nymphodorus came up with. The Suda mentions a Sappho born in Eresos on Lesbos, with some of the biographical information that we've discussed, with a mother named Kleiss, three brothers, married to Kirkless with the daughter, inventor of the plectrum, writer of nine books of poetry. This Sappho was cast upon with moral suspicion, not because of prostitution, but because of her female friendships. The pseudo writes, She had three companions and friends, Attis, Telesippa, and Megara. She was also accused of shameful love with them. And then the second Sappho, this one from Mytilene, was not a prostitute but a harp player and aligns more with the story of Phaon. So this one says, Sappho from the island of Lesbos, from the city of Mytilene, a harp player. She threw herself into the sea from Lucas because of her love for Phaon of Mytilene. Some have registered that there is lyric poetry by this woman too. <laughs> Again, okay. I say, what is the truth? Okay, cool. I love yeah. it. Man, yeah. ancient scholarship is just so the amount of mental gymnastics <laughs> that like scholars right? do to make sense of things is just it makes me laugh. It's stories, y'all. Stories. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of the people were making shit up. Yeah. So why do we think Sappho is gay? If we really want to present our evidence, let's talk about that to round things out. Why do we think they're gay? I mean, so many of her poems are about yearning and love for women. And it's so explicit, and it's filled with what feels like very personal longing and desire, even if it might be wrapped up in, you know, quote-unquote traditional or ritual verse. Like, as we've been saying, the poetry that she writes is so different in tone than the male writers of the age. It feels very personal and filled with emotional. It's about how she feels when she looks at something beautiful rather than about the object itself being beautiful. It's about how she feels about it. And it's hard not to read that and be like, well, this must be an expression of what she's actually feeling because no one else is writing about what they're feeling. So <laughs> she's not even following like convention. It's not even like a, you know, a convention at the time to write about your feelings in this way. Therefore, she's clearly just, this is just like a poetic persona that she's creating. Like it feels very personal when you read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so many scholars hesitate to apply the, like, lowercase lesbian framework to Sappho's life in poetry, but it can all be, like, like you were saying, it can all be seen in the poetry. Jane McIntosh Snyder, the author of a fantastic book called Lesbian Desire and the Lyrics of Sappho, so wonderfully puts it, quote, Debates around the question, was Sappho a lesbian, strike me as idle. The important part is that her songs focus on women, on women's emotional lives with one another, and on female erotic desire directed toward other females. Sappho's poetic world, whatever its sources of inspiration or origin, was a female one. 
a world in which male figures, when they do appear, stand on the periphery. As to what her actual world was like, we can only make educated guesses, but her poetic world, as the fragments clearly show, was centered on women and on homoerotic desire. Right. So. Right. Basically, it's like, whether she was actually a lesbian herself or not, her poetry is... Mm-hmm. Like, her poetry is about the erotic desire between women, so that's what it we can got. can stand alone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the blatant queer erasure of Sappho, like, there's evidence of, of hearsay from later sources and desperation to create a heterosexual narrative for the poetess, which, that's part of why we think she's gay, because of this, like, kind of frantic desire oh, to, like... This <laughs> overcorrection. Yes. So, like... You know, the Oxyrhynchus papyri from the Hellenistic period remarks at one point that Sappho has been accused by a few of being undisciplined and sexually involved with women, or the Suda (laughs) from the 10th century stating that she was slanderously accused of shameful intimacy with certain of her female pupils, like the amount of pearl clutching that's happening in these statements. Mm -hmm. Ovid, which is, you know, where we get the tale of Sappho and Phaon, portrays Sappho as discomfited by allegations that she enjoyed erotic attachments with other women. At line 201, she complains that her love for women of her native Lesbos has made her infamous. Like, just... (laughs) Which is from the same source where, like, Ovid is talking about her female companions that she's apparently giving up for Phaon. Which, I just, like... Ovid is just... Contradicts himself all the time. (laughs) The way the writers approach Sappho's reputation of erotic love with other women with shame is, like, so transparent. It's so incredibly overt. All three of these sources consistently insist that Sappho's primary dalliances were heterosexual, citing her infatuation with Phaon, the fact that she's married to a man named Kirkloss and had a daughter. Yet, by comparison, the same kind of queer relationships enjoyed by the male poets of Sappho's time don't get the same response of disbelief. Quote, a number of these same authorities refer to the homosexual involvements of Greek male lyric poets as established facts. Like virtually all ancient testimony on the lives of Greek poets, they do not give the impression that male pederasty, at least for the active partner, was thought cause for shame, unquote. And yet they're like, oh no, a woman with other women, ah! Women don't have sexuality. No. That should be the, that should be the subtitle of this entire fucking podcast, honestly. I mean, right. Um- <laughs> Lee, can you tell us about Kirkloss? Yes. Of so, so we've mentioned her husband, question mark. So remember when we talked about Kirklos of Andros, the husband Sappho supposedly had? Yeah, this was definitely an invention of the Attic comedies. Uh-huh. Like, this dude never existed. How do we know? How do we know that this specifically is a crock of shit? Mm-hmm. Like, but why wouldn't this be a true fact found in the reputable ancient encyclopedias? Well, When we dissect this, as later scholars did when they were trying to rescue Sappho's reputation, um, it's noted that Sappho's husband's name, Kirklos, is uh, curiously similar to the Greek word kirkos, or tail, which was slang for penis. Mm -hmm. And andros, meaning man. So yeah, why shouldn't we totally believe that Sappho was just a straight gal when when she was married to Dick Johnson from Man Island? <laughs> just, just like Rod Penis from the Isle of Dicks. Yep, yep. Manly my- Manson. From- yes. Here is my husband, a man with a penis. Like it's got the same energy as like from Brooklyn Nine Nine as Holt. <laughs> 
right? Like, it's like, yes, hi, I am Sappho. I am straight. Here is my husband, man, husband, man with yeah. dick. It's like, it's like um, <laughs> it's the, the, the sure Jan meme. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Sure. George Glass. I didn't know that there was a George Glass at our skew. <laughs> I didn't know that there was a Dick Johnson on Man Island. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. so as as you could tell, like when you dive into it a little bit more, just the tiniest bit, it's very clearly a joke. Yep. <laughs> yes. Very, very clearly. So we're also gonna let's talk a little bit about Sappho's school, quote unquote, her school. There are some scholars who take the angle that Sappho was more of like a headmistress for the young women around her. So she's leading this transition period from their youth into marriage, that she's serving a public function of instilling sensual awareness and sexual self-regard and of easing women coming of age in a sexually segregated society. So that she's like teaching young women how to be sexually aware and in touch with their sensuality. And since they couldn't do so with their male lovers, they did so with other women, which is also gay, but like, sure. Um... (laughs) It's not gay if it's just for class. Right? That's kind of what it sounds like they're saying. Like, oh, she's just this is just practicing kissing with other girls. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's we've seen that refrain before, that yeah. women being together with women is practice for them being with men. Right, right. Which is so, I think, just Stupid. weird to me because it's like, <laughs> but they're different. It's very different being with, yeah. as someone who is multigender attracted, like, being in a relationship with a woman is different than being in a relationship with a man. So, like, if I had, like, quote, unquote, practiced on women, like, I would have gotten into a relationship with a man and been like, what? It's okay. different. This is different. <laughs> All right. Everything I learned is different. So we see in Sappho's own hymn to Aphrodite with the lines, if she runs away, soon she will pursue, which is a contrast with the strictly designed, active, passive, older, younger, pursuer-pursued dynamic of Greek male sexuality, which we will get into, you know, when we do an episode on Greek male sexuality. But we've seen this kind of dynamic in other societies from around the world, where male homosexuality was pretty rigidly prescribed in terms of roles, and you didn't really switch. The idea of switching back and forth between roles is is a more modern expression of male homosexuality historically. As Ella Hasselsford notes, in Sappho's lesbianism, by contrast, it would appear that the pursuer could become the pursued at any moment. Both of the women involved are liberated from the scripts that predetermined those roles. Queerness is not necessarily the freedom from an eroticized power imbalance, but the freedom from its gendered predetermination. This freedom is miraculous for a society like archaic Greece, and it is miraculous still today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in fact like this concept of women as equals in a sexual or romantic relationship was so scandalous and miraculous that it may actually have been the very cause of the Sappho as a schoolmistress theory. Like, later scholars couldn't abide by such a relationship, so of course Sappho must have been involved in some sort of arrangement or organization that upheld these established power differentials, right? Mm. Like, Sappho can't be experiencing these things with women unless she has a significant power imbalance over them, because that's what we understand as it as right. it relates to the way that men are having relationships with one another. Right, and it can't be that she is creating an understanding of love and relationships that exist outside 
of the significantly power-imbalanced male-female relationships within Greek society. She must be part of the system trying to enculturate women into a heavily power-imbalanced relationship. Like, she can't be against the status quo. She must be reinforcing the status quo somehow because Mm -hmm. they can't abide the idea of, like, Sappho as creating this kind of revolutionary understanding of relationships, one that's between women and that exists outside of as you were saying, a power imbalance, which there was a power imbalance between men and women in Greek society. So the idea, like, it's just it's just men being threatened by the idea of women being in a relationship that does not involve them and one that is more equal. It, like, makes me think of, like, Gaston's, like, it's not right for a woman to read. Like, soon she gets ideas and thinking, like, it's not right for, for a woman to be a lesbian because soon she gets the ideas that she can be equal in a relationship and, and not be subservient to her partner, like... It's like smacks of that energy. Like egalitarian love. Gasp. <gasps> oh no. The scandal. So while it does seem like there were institutions like this for men in this society, it is conceivable that there might be something for women, but this also assumes that the erotic element to Sappho's poetry is purely stylistic. That like her you know, erotic affection and the and kind of the romantic nature is just like Oh, that's just like set dressing. It's not meant to be taken literally by herself or her students. It's meant to just be like this poetic device. Dubin says, It taxes belief that the erotic admiration via poetry could be effective where the author dissociates herself from it. If the praise of young men by male poets was undeniably based on sexual attraction and the desire to possess a young man was socially acceptable, the same may be assumed for women. And I would say must be assumed for women. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. if you're going to assume that, like, male poets talking about their attraction for men represents their own experience, like, you can't just say, like, oh, well, but if it's a woman, then it's just poetic device. Just a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he sums it up nicely when he says, to lead is to lead by example, not precept. So, Sappho practice what she preached. Mm-hmm. There's also arguments about personal identity versus the choral nature of Greek poetry. A lot of people, when denying that Sappho could have been feeling these things personally, claim that she can't be expressing these feelings because some of her poems are ritualized. So she must be expressing a collective feeling and that she's taking on this artistic persona to conform to the poetry standards of the day. These scholars claim that the Greeks had no concept of artistic ego and that the poets weren't speaking from their own experience the way that poets do now. But like we've seen in choral poetry, speaking from some kind of collective consciousness. But they're not contradictory. Maybe she was drawn to these forms of expression because she liked ladies and wanted to talk about how much she liked them. But, like, also remember that Plutarch, when writing about Sappho, says, Sappho gives vent through her song to the heat that consumes her heart, which sounds to me like even Plutarch understood that, like, she's speaking from personal experience and not just as, like, a Greek chorus. Like, he's literally saying, like, yeah, she's talking about how she feels inside. Mm-hmm. So this idea that they didn't have a concept of artistic ego is, I just think, kind of like... It's, it's, men- it's the mental gymnastics again. Yes. Of like, Sappho, Sappho must be an incredibly unique example. Right. When she's writing about loving women, she's taking on like the artistic persona of a man writing about loving women. Sure, Jan. Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Except she never says that. No one says that of men writing about other men. Well, he must be putting himself in the mind of a woman when he's talking about how much he loves men. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, based on everything that we've said, I 
I feel like it's pretty clear that Lee and I are like, yeah, she gay. She gay. She gay. She very gay. <laughs> Which leads into how gay were they? How gay was Sappho? Lee, how how gay was Sappho? Oh, God. I know, right? Like, we could continue talking for ages. There's so much more. Like, we yeah. just have to cut it here. Um, God. I'm going to say, I mean, she's the OG. She's the OG right. lesbian. And every single, every single attempt to create a different narrative of Sappho is so transparent mm-hmm. that they're trying so hard it's there's not really a lot of like digging to find out how queer Sappho was there's a lot of digging to scrape away at the veneers that reveal how queer she was so i'm gonna say that Sappho was capital l lesbian <laughs> but in the gay way out of 10 mm. on the scale of how gay were they right what about what about you, Gretchen? How I, gay was Sappho? I feel like Sappho is like the scale gay. Like if I'm coming up with a like a scale of gay, I'm like on a scale of zero to Sappho. How gay is Sappho? Like, well, Sappho is like it was Sappho. Sappho gay. <laughs> like Sappho levels. Like she like you're saying she's the OG. <laughs> she's the standard. She's like as gay as you get. Like how do you get gayer than Sappho? Um, so I will say she is 10 rosy fingers of the moon gay. Ooh. Um, yeah. She has 10 rosy fingers of the moon levels of gay. I'll, I'll amend mine to say that she's 400 volcanoes under the skin of gay. How about that? Yeah. That's, that's so evocative. Uh Uh-huh. I love it. I love that poem. Yeah. Do you have any any closing thoughts? I know we kind of rush rush to the end here, but yeah, that's that's Sappho for you. Yeah. I mean, look up. Okay. Yeah. To summarize, someone needs to give us Sappho shit post bot. Yes. Um, <laughs> she her poems are full of longing and very very relatable moods, even even the very fragmentary stuff. Oh, I can tell the funny story about how before I knew I was queer, I was at a bookstore and it was like closing so they were having this paper bag sale of like fill a paper bag for five dollars and i picked up a book very old book um binding was totally broken and it had a picture of the muses on the front and i was like oh this looks cool and i opened it and i was like "Ooh, sappho she's a greek poet and shoved it in my bag <laughs> and then like years later when i figured i was queer i was like oh that's why i grabbed the book of sappho that reminds me of like when I was a teenager and obsessed with NSYNC and Lance Bass and then I came out and then Lance Bass came out and everybody called me on my parents landline telephone asked them to speak to me and then said oh it makes sense now (laughs) so I was attracted to the male Ellen DeGeneres sue me (laughs) (laughs) anyway Anyway, uh, I think that's a good place to stop yes. for right now. Yes. Um, that's it for History is Gay. Um, you can find us online individually as usual. Gretchen, where can people find your lovely self on the World Wide Web? Well, when I am not sighing over sapphic psalmody, 
I am working on my novel and writing nerdy media analysis about Star Wars, Steven Universe, and A Song of Ice and Fire over at thefandamentals.com and my personal website, gnellis.com, which I am trying to get renamed. Or you can check me out on Tumblr and Twitter as at gnjoneswriter and on YouTube as Baal the Bard, and that's mostly for my Song of Ice and Fire meta-analysis stuff. I'm going to be talking pretty soon about the Dance of Dragons, if anyone likes Song of Ice and Fire, and there are some pretty cool queer ladies that I'm going to be talking about, so um, if you like queer dragon ladies and queer pirates and things like that, I'm going to be talking about some fictional ones. Yay! Lee, how about you? Where can you be found on the interwebs? So I'm Lee, and when I'm uh, not nerding out about rosy-fingered moons and completely subverting the ancient Greek ideals of the uh, worlds of war and battle with love. I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and doing more queer history education at the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco. Nice. Uh, history is Gay podcast. We can be found on Tumblr as History is Gay podcast. Twitter at History is Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions. If you want to get that uh, Sappho shitpost bot done, uh, you can send <laughs> us an email at historyisgaypodcast at gmail.com. And as usual, if you enjoy the show and want to continue supporting us in making it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho's Salon minisodes. We just recently released one that is Gretchen reading some lovely letters from Radcliffe Hall, so you should check that out. And we have special sneak peeks, uh, the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show, and more. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our patron community along with the amazing Julie Seigler, Janessa Eddy, Sophia Phillips, Grace, Alexis Miloglav, Ollie Gray, and Laura Galm. Thank you all. all. Yay. We couldn't do this without you. Yeah, this is amazing. Again, we say every single episode, we're so grateful for your support and for your love and for your beautiful emails that you send us. Mm -hmm. Please continue talking with us. We want to talk with you. And if you want to uh, show your support uh, physically on your body or when you're like drinking tea, you can buy awesome merch at our History is Gay store. You can click on shop at our website. There's fun things. Uh, We're working on getting some new stuff in there. So hold tight. But we're always interested in hearing more ideas. And last, remember, please to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and we can expand our awesome community worldwide and throughout the United States. It's really awesome to see just how global our community is sometimes. So please, please, please remember... Rate, review, subscribe. That's how other people find us. Yes. So that's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Bye.